I think you know the social cause will take precedence over environmental cause and push back the environmental agenda. You know, companies are going to be thinking about their operations at every level because it's going to be affecting their capital allocation uh, and the financing of that. Hello. From the energy transition to withdrawing from Russian assets, the conflict in Ukraine has put environmental, social and governance issues in the spotlight for businesses and investors across the globe. How can companies and organizations navigate these challenges? What does it mean for the path to net zero? And what are the implications for asset allocation? I'm Carsten Röhmheld, filling in for Richard Edgar, and this is Rich Pickings, Fidelity's Asset Allocation Podcast. With me today are Portfolio Manager and Director of Equities for the Emerging Markets team, Poonam Sharma, and Portfolio Manager, Caroline Shaw. Thank you both for joining me. Hello. Hi. I'm interested to hear what's the biggest challenge that the war in Ukraine is posing from an ESG perspective. Maybe let's start with you, Poonam. I think there are two big challenges being posed uh, by the Ukraine war. Uh, one is on the social side because it's a massive humanitarian crisis impacting lives. But the other is also about how to balance social with environment within the ESG parlance. If you look at the social side on the ground, the, there is a massive loss of lives in Ukraine. You know, more than uh, 11 million people have been displaced from their homes. It's a loss of a happy generation. Uh, the well-being of these people is absolutely uh, disrupted, and especially in the context that it comes after a period of protracted COVID lockdowns. The other social impact is the shortage and the inflationary environment, uh, which will impact the world at large. So if you look at the key ESDG goals, the number one and number two goals are no poverty and zero hunger. Over the last many decades, we have seen uh, poverty levels, extreme poverty levels come down steadily. But uh, the inflationary impact of this shortage economy uh, is going to have a disruptive impact of this uh, poverty levels going uh, down. The world was estimating that our poverty, extreme poverty levels will go down to about 3%, which is at 9% right now. I think there will be a major uh, disruption to that, and especially in the emerging market context, uh, where uh, food and fuel are a very, very large part of the consumption basket as far as uh, the people uh, there are concerned. The other thing that, as I mentioned, is it's all about uh, balancing the environment uh, and social. Energy security and energy inflation are uh, as important as the need to have clean energy and clean environment. Uh, social uh, impact is more direct and it also impacts the political fortunes uh, of the governments and people are able to see the impact directly versus environmental impact, uh, which is not perceived as discernible as and as direct. So I think, you know, the social cause will take precedence over environmental cause and push back the environmental agenda uh, and the path to transition for cleaner energy. So some really severe changes, almost an era change that is happening right now. Caroline, what's your take on this? What's the biggest challenge that the war in Ukraine is posing from an ESG perspective? Well, I think if we take the investment angle of ESG, I think one of the most emotive challenges is the question raised over weapons and war. And what seemed like such a straightforward argument in peacetime has become a much more emotional one when we're confronted with the human tragedies we've been seeing in the Ukraine. 
Um, so most investment funds um, with an ESG perspective would be excluding areas such as controversial weapons manufacturing. Um, and that would be in line with specific values. And then, of course, the war has brought a lot of debate about the eligibility of defence spending to be classified as a sustainable economic activity. Uh, and I think the debate will roll on for a while. But if conventional weapons that are used for defence are moved off restricted lists, there isn't a given that they would be included in ESG funds. It's also unlikely they'd be included in, um, in taxonomies at international or national level where the ESG fund classification is key. But I think this, this debate has been really interesting. And from our perspective as asset managers, we have to work really closely with our clients to determine uh, what sort of asset allocation is appropriate, uh, given that this issue has been highlighted in such a way recently. Thank you very much, Caroline. So before we get started uh, in more detail, earlier I spoke to Fidelity's Global Chief Investment Officer, Andrew McCaffrey, to get an update on Fidelity's core asset allocation view. So the, the continued sort of cautiousness that uh, we've had, you know, is not going to change just at this point. Um, you know, we do continue to look around to see if there's signs that sentiment is particularly, you know, at an extreme and that uh, markets are reflecting what we feel are, you know, inappropriate valuations. But the reality is, as we've seen now flowing uh, into risk assets, that, you know, we feel there's more to, uh, to go and therefore that um, caution is warranted. Again, we've reflected that um, through being underweight uh, in equities, and we had taken that primarily uh, through uh, Europe um, and to a degree elsewhere. Um, it has slowed down our willingness to um, to reallocate to uh, China and Asia uh, quite so, um, uh, you know, sort of a cumulative sense uh, going into to Q2, but it doesn't change our view there that we are and will see opportunities develop um, through this quarter and that the stimulus will start to, uh, to flow a little bit more concerted fashion. Um, but it also means that we uh, stay a little bit more defensive for credit. And the, uh, the dollar trade that um, uh, the team uh, have uh, managed to, uh, to hold on to and certainly um, uh, to not listen to me, which has been um, right over the last couple of percent, um, has uh, you know, continued to be a good um, part of the, the portfolio and hedge as well. Um, and I think as we look forward that from here is that we want to see you know, clear signals of change in either the inflationary front, so i.e. that um, uh, we see signs that it is at least temporarily topping out, um, that the policy approach from um, some of the central banks uh, you know, doesn't look so divergent and so aggressive, especially on the, the tightening front, um, which looking to, uh, to the Fed and some of the ECB narrative at the moment. Um, and also, you know, looking into uh, areas in the economic fundamentals of um, how much we're seeing the credit impulse in China starting to develop versus demand destruction elsewhere. And that demand destruction is a key one. If we do see that, that means that, uh, you know, caution could turn into um, you know, more pronounced um, uh, period of weakness. Andrew McCaffrey, Fidelity's global CIO, speaking there. You can hear Andrew's interview in full on the Rich Pickings podcast channel. Caroline, how do Andrew's remarks reflect in your own allocations? Well, we are cautiously positioned at the moment. Um, we've had concerns in Europe um, and have shifted towards US equities from our position in European equities. Uh, but alongside that, we've also shifted slightly away from Japanese equities over concerns there too. And we've become a little bit more cautious on emerging markets in general, 
where we still hold an overweight position, but the environment is just a little less supportive than it was. Um, we've been uh, taking off some exposure in Latin America, for example, um, over concerns over the high inflation in Brazil um, and with um, issues about food inflation there rising further, uh, Brazil being a key importer of fertiliser from the Ukraine. And with elections there on the horizon, there's just too much uncertainty, uncertainty there for us for the moment. Uh, what we have noted, though, is the recent supportive narrative in China, uh, and we're just waiting to see how that plays out in markets. So, like I say, we're still overweight in emerging markets, and the long-term theme holds, but just a little cautious than we were. Um, dollar strength has been really helpful. Um, and if I look longer term in our thematic strategies, where the themes really are long term, um, we like the prospects for renewables for the reasons that uh, Poonam alluded to earlier. Um, and we're investing in companies right across the supply chain in both the wind and solar space. And we also like uh, opportunities within the battery supply chain, um, which again touches on that theme that has come right to the fore as a result of the war and this uh, need for Europe and other parts of the world as well to uh, remove a reliance on Russian oil and gas. Uh, so I guess at the overall the picture is that we are just a little cautious uh, still, and we have been for a couple of months now, um, whilst we just assess uh, the reactions in the market. I should add, however, that Brazil is one to watch, though, because it's a key iron ore exporter. And so the recent policy announcements from China may offer some support. I'm sure Poonam will have a view on this. Uh, yes, I, I would just like to add that uh, in this entire uh, shortage and inflationary uh, economy, uh, LATAM uh, is uh, the breadbasket for uh, the American region and its major producer of commodities. They have the right infrastructure to export these commodities. So from that perspective, uh, the entire energy and commodity trade uh, has has a potential to shift to uh, the LATAM region. Uh, and uh, it augurs well, uh, both for the fiscal as well as uh, the trade balances for these geographies, uh, which means a currency appreciation. Uh, we have seen uh, a very rapid currency appreciation as far as Brazil is concerned. The central bankers there have been very prudent. They understand the importance and the hardships associated with inflation, Brazil's selling rate uh, bottomed at 2%. And as, as we stand today, it is at 11.5%. So the central bank is independent far ahead. So to that extent, I would believe that, you know, emerging markets do offer some uh, opportunities uh, with respect uh, to, to commodity inflation uh, as far as this world is concerned. The LATAM region is perceived uh, as a commodity region, but, you know, there are other opportunities also. We have have a huge amount of digital talent uh, within the LATAM space. Thank you both for that. Now, on to the main topic of this episode. This month, we asked Fidelity's analysts for their insights on whether or not the war is impacting ESG issues at the companies they cover. To kick us off, here's credit analyst Callum Emsley. Uh, the conflict is going to have a big impact on net zero plans for the utility sector. Uh, in Europe, the impact has been guided by the EU's plan to reach energy independence from Russian gas, oil and coal and mitigate the impact of high power prices on businesses and consumers. That plan is called Repower EU and it was released in early March. A key plank of this uh, plan is accelerating by 20% the already ambitious plans for solar and wind generation capacity rollout. 
The EU is targeting combined 900 gigawatts of installed wind and solar by 2030, and that's versus 355 gigawatts installed at the end of 2021. For most utilities I cover, this amounts to an acceleration of existing plans, with most names already planning ambitious increases in renewables rollout and the grid capex required to support that. Picking up on Callan's comments there, the conflict has clearly raised questions about the energy transition and highlighted Russia's role in global oil and gas supply. Poonam, you focus on emerging markets. Are you seeing any differences in how those regions are responding to this challenge? Uh, yes, a couple of things here. Uh, just to put a little bit of economic backdrop in place, if, if you were to look at uh, GDP per capita and uh, food and fuel as a part of the consumption baskets, emerging market countries, are most of them are below 5,000 US dollar uh, USD per capita income. And food and fuel as a part of the consumption basket can be anywhere in the region of 40 to 70 percent. So they get impacted a lot. And the social imperative uh, as a result of that in the emerging market is far higher. And this economic backdrop cannot be ignored by the governments that are operating in the emerging markets. Emerging markets were in the midst of an important transition uh, as far as their uh, energy is concerned. For them, energy security is as important uh, uh, as clean energy. Gas was an important part of this transition, and the gas market is completely disrupted because Russia was a major exporter of uh, gas. So we are seeing two trends here. One, the emerging market in their uh, endeavor to provide energy security are moving a little backwards. Uh, the thermal coal plants will not close down at the same pace as we had anticipated. So they are going back a little on their plants because gas is not available. Whereas uh, developed markets are, may also be slow in their transition uh, because uh, gas was a part of their transition. But they were anyways ahead in their energy transition. They were far ahead on alternate energy. So they are stepping up their investments as far as renewable energy, alternate investment is uh, being done, and they are they are going to do it at any cost. So that is these are some of the subtle differences that we are observing, but it does push back the entire transition uh, for energy. Caroline, given the uncertainty ahead, do you expect net zero targets to slip down companies' lists of priorities? We've not yet seen any narrative that suggests there will be delays, but there are risks, of course. And this comes off the back of a couple of years of COVID, where corporates have had to prioritise objectives relating to the pandemic. And now we've had supply chain uh, tightness, input cost pressures, um, and there's general pressure on margins, uh, depending on how easy it's going to be to pass on uh, additional costs to consumers of products and services. So I, I think that corporates are in a, they're, they're balancing um, the, the needs of the immediate versus the needs of the the net zero target, which is further in the future. There is this refreshed impetus for renewable energy now. Uh, and so that is going to be helpful for net zero objectives. Um, and it's sort of been forced upon us as governments and companies have realised that the dependency on Russian oil and gas is, is not a sustainable outcome. And so it will require investment. Our analysts, they've been speaking to companies who are increasing short term coal production, for example. And we know this to be the case, um, that there has to be this short term increase, which isn't helpful for net zero 
in order to get us to a long-term goal that we, we've set. Um, and happily, the companies aren't changing their medium-term targets. So the objective here is secure and reliable energy. And there's this delicate balance between protecting the most vulnerable people from the higher energy prices we're currently seeing versus this switch to renewables. Um, and I suppose the conclusion really is what is evident is to everybody is that we're going to need increased investment to move more quickly um, and the desire to wean ourselves off Russian oil and gas has provided some urgency. Yeah, we, we saw that in Germany as well when we wanted to exit the coal industry you know, earlier than 2038, which was the first target by the government, now 35, but it may be running longer now than anticipated before. So that's one anecdote to show that um, things have changed. That's the corporate view, of course. Poonam, what about governments? How do they see it? Uh, so during COP26, 80% of the world's emissions were covered by government pledges to achieve net zero. But having said that, you know, political cycles are won and lost on, on inflation. And I do believe that the governments will not be able to honor their COP26 targets as, as it completely threatens and disrupts their winning potential. Uh, as you mentioned about Germany, uh, there is another case, actually, uh, I was reading about Poland. Poland had uh, said that they'll have, have the last operating coal mine by 2049. And now they have requisitioned to the European Union that they should be allowed to extend that target. Uh, and similarly for them also, natural gas was a, a, a natural interim fuel, but now Russia has completely cut them off uh, from, from, from the gas. So what alternative do they have? Energy security is as important, as I said, as clean energy. So uh, governments will renege on their uh, commitments. Let's look at the S now and some of the social impacts. One of the most prominent issues has been the withdrawal of corporate and trading activity from Russia. Here's healthcare analyst Ben Eaton on the impact he's seen on the companies he covers. Medical devices have generally been exempt from sanctions against Russia. And most companies have continued to supply the Russian market in those cases where any disturbance could threaten patient well-being especially for the most vulnerable patient populations. We have seen companies stop sales of products where there is perhaps a less pressing healthcare need and products are more consumer orientated. The war in Ukraine has definitely raised the prospect of risks to patients from any shortage or disruption in the availability of critical products and services. Companies have been working hard to maintain supply, but clearly logistics have been very challenging. Companies have also provided support to Ukraine through third parties and direct donations of funds and or equipment. According to Yale School of Management, more than 750 companies have curtailed operations in the country, but some remain. Caroline, what welfare issues have companies been thinking about? So there are a lot of welfare issues at stake here, and there is a duty of care to employees in Russia, for example. There's the access of the everyday Russian to goods and necessities. Uh, there are pharmaceutical companies which want to supply necessary medical supplies. Um, all this while being mindful of international sanctions. Uh, the Yale School of Management um, tracking exercise is really helpful. Um, and they began tracking a 1,000 companies since the start of the war. And as you know, 750 have publicly announced their curtailing operations. So I took a look at some of the others because what's happened is the publicly available list that they've made out, put out there has raised awareness and public response. And that has actually pressurised companies into taking action. So... The reasons that people have maintained or companies have maintained operations are quite complex and varied. Um, there's quite a few who have 
not done very much. Um, quite a few of the 250 uh, who have stayed in Russia, um, they're not putting out any corporate statement at all. It is just business as usual. Whereas there are others that are buying time um, and they've suspended non-essential business activity. An example would be a company like GlaxoSmithKline, uh, which has halted its clinical trials in Russia, yet is carrying on with existing trials and also providing essential medicines. And then there's a, another category of companies which are scaling back and they're companies which have stopped new investment and they're scaling back commitments they'd already made. And an example there is Pirelli. So it's a tyre manufacturer. It stopped investment. It's limiting its activities, but it's actually still guaranteeing its salaries for its employees. So it's those decisions that are really important for the, the everyday Russia on the ground who's got, you know, who's employed. Um, the final category is the, is the large group of 750 that have suspended activity companies i mean there's so many of them but adidas apple komatsu um i mean komatsu is quite interesting at the heavy machinery company suspended shipments to russia uh, it's actually a fairly material part of its revenue so it's a big corporate decision it's evolving is what i would say uh, but one thing that really struck me is that the way companies have had to respond to a social pressure that never happened before the advent of social media, or certainly not at the speed at which it's happened. Um, so McDonald's, for example, responding to the mounting pressure on social media and then temporarily closing 800 restaurants uh, while still paying its salaries. You know, that decision would not have been taken as quickly uh, or, or at all without the pressure that was raised through social media. So it's it's an interesting, complex situation and one that's continuing to evolve. Yeah, but as you say, very differentiated behavior with different companies and a, a lot to be thought about here. Poonam, food prices have reached a record high coupled with rising inflation. To what extent could this compound inequality and widen the gap between developed and emerging markets? We are already living in a very, very unequal world. And there are multiple papers published uh, on this topic and inflation definitely increases inequality. Let me just give you a theoretical example. In a scenario like today, when you know general inflation is at around 10%, which uh, inflation is at 7%. So let's compare two profiles of people, uh, You know, a person earning $1 million, expenses of 200,000, so personal income uh, increases by 7%, which is 70,000, expenses increase by 10%, which is 20,000, but still there is a net saving of 50,000. Uh, which is less. We can argue that the purchasing power goes down because of uh, inflation, but still in a very good position, right? And now compare an average uh, household earning 35,000, possibly spending the entire 35,000 on their expenditure. 10% uh, inflation means increase in expenses by 3,500, 7% wage inflation, incremental income of only 2,450, which is a negative of about 1,000. So that is the inequality and it exacerbates because of inflation for, for the general household. And as you go down the income uh, gap, especially in emerging market where the consumption basket is basic and where the inflationary pressures are even more massive, the impact is huge. As this finite pool of money takes care of the basic necessities, there is that much less left for healthcare, uh, education, uh, and which actually have the potential to enhance employment avenues and future income uh, generation. So it all will have a negative uh, impact as far as 
uh, emerging market is concerned and the lower strata within emerging markets and further increase the uh, inequality. Let's look at governance issues now. Caroline, cybersecurity and the risk of digital attacks has been much discussed. What response are we seeing from corporates here? Well, I think corporates have to respond. So there's a few key points here. Recent research um, from Kaspersky, which is a Russian multinational cybersecurity firm, just it confirms that distributed denial of service attacks is up 4.5 times greater than last year. So what we're seeing is more attacks. Uh, and interestingly, what we're seeing is more sustained attacks lasting longer than the typical normal attack. And the longer duration attacks are mainly targeting government agencies and banks. And they believe that this increased activity is related to the war. So I think we've seen a shift in the number of attacks due to the war. But it's not just related to the war and it's not just a short term increase. So McKinsey research shows that uh, unique malware strains have increased from 10 million in 2010 to 130 million 10 years later. So that's a huge increase. Uh, you know, the word exponential springs to mind there. Um, spending on cybersecurity has actually shifted from preemptive, so uh, spending to try and stop attacks, to actually focusing on attacks and the recovery from those attacks. So companies that haven't been that well prepared and now they're having to spend the money after the fact. And the UK government's done a survey and finds that 39% of UK businesses reported a cyber breach in the last 12 months. Well, that's quite a lot. That's two in every five businesses reporting that breach. And medium and large companies, they're largely the targets. But actually what they found as well is that more than a quarter of charities have been targeted as well. So it is a massive issue across the sector. One in five of the companies or charities attacked, they lose either money, data or assets. So we've got a problem here. Um, and then the last point there is that CIO surveys show that spending is expected to accelerate. Uh, and it's not a surprise, really, uh, because there's a need to do that. You know, that's evidence from the data. Um, and the delivery of that is increasingly cloud-based rather than premise-based um, protection, if you like. The UK government actually found that the majority of UK businesses don't have a business continuity plan covering cybersecurity. So I think from a corporate perspective, there is still work to do and the risks are there. And so, you know, one of the uh, things that we've done in the portfolios uh, recently is implemented a tactical long cybersecurity trade. So we've been able to uh, access this thematic idea, if you like, which is definitely a long term trend. But there are obviously short term drivers as well with the war having um, sort of come this year. Uh, it's initiated these additional attacks that bring the, the subject matter to the fore. You just described some uh, really serious increase in numbers on these breaches. Poonam, is this focus on cybersecurity likely to be permanent? There is absolutely no doubt in my mind that it uh, is a permanent uh, shift in focus with respect to cybersecurity. The character of cybersecurity will also possibly change. If you look at cybersecurity till now, it was about data privacy, protecting data, and the design of cybersecurity was targeted to incorporate that. Uh, 
but there is a geopolitical factor which is becoming dominant so it's not about ransomware or somebody you know hacking your company and asking for money uh, there are now uh, governments which are trying to jeopardize your business so geopolitics becomes an important factor uh, to incorporate in the design of your cybersecurity so that is going to be an important shift as far as uh, cybersecurity is concerned the other thing is also about this threat to humani- humanitarian organizations or charity organizations uh, because they have very sensitive data about donors about refugees which could possibly be exploited so as i said you know there is a change in the character of cybersecurity so following up on the geopolitical point that puna made caroline how do the events of the past few months change the way companies think about where they place businesses and where they operate i think companies will always go where opportunities are uh, but what the war has brought into focus is the fact that companies have uh, maybe need to do some more due diligence about where they operate but also they've got contractual obligations to fulfill and i think there's you know, the, just the issue on those companies trying to withdraw from Russia uh, and the contractual obligations they have not just to, um, well, it's mainly to the people who are affected. It's the human cost of a war. Um, and, you know, the Russians that had jobs with these companies, you know, at least they, you know, with some companies, at least those people have still got a, a secure income in the short term. So I think there's there's this balance about taking the opportunities versus the the political risks, which are definitely not going away now. So companies need to just be a lot more careful where they tread. Um, and this is has been the shifting developments. They're not just this year. It's been shifting for a while, I think, uh, with other parts of um, the world subject to geopolitical pressures as well. I think, you know, I alluded to it earlier about the social media pressure. Um, consumers have been publicly criticising companies and rally, rallying consumers, which... You know, companies have reacted to that this year, but they that helps put a spotlight on on issues, and that companies can't afford to ignore that. That's their consumer base with a voice for the first time. Um, and, and the other thing about you know the, the movement of ESG, a lot of the initial good work that was done, the easy work, if you like, on the ESG movement has been to improve engagements, uh, largely around disclosure. Uh, that was the early work that was done. So what we now have is companies who have got. Uh, or putting much more information out there to allow investors uh, to engage on those issues. And so I think that is one example where um, well, you can effectively engage with the company uh, and look at defined action plans, not least with their operations in different parts of the world uh, and also their their investments in, uh, in say, green technologies and, uh, and their path to net zero as well. Uh, but ultimately, ESG is about are how our capital allocation decisions are creating positive um, societal impacts and consequences. Uh, and you know, companies are going to be thinking about their operations at every level because it's going to be affecting their capital allocation uh, and the financing of that. When we look across emerging markets, Poonam, are we seeing similar considerations or are there differences? Uh, there are differences within emerging markets uh, across the world. So there are uh, producer e- uh, economies, you know, which will do well in uh, a scenario like uh, today because there is inflation, it is higher income, which means better budget balances, better trade. 
balances, uh, which uh, helps uplift the overall uh, living cost. And there, there are uh, consumer uh, emerging economies, you know, which will uh, be exactly the opposite. They need to import oil, they need to import food. So, uh, you know, we need to be very, very aware of these nuances. Uh, and, you know, the world has moved very, very quickly uh, towards uh, higher demand for some of these commodities. We also need to be very conscious that we are monitoring the value chain and that in our zeal to produce the commodity, we don't forget uh, that uh, e, uh, e, S and G are getting compromised across the value chain and uh, within emerging markets more so because we are still early in, uh, in our journey with respect to ESG. So these are some of the uh, flags that I would like to raise and be very mindful of when we are in investing across emerging markets. It's almost time to wrap up for this month, but not before we play hot cakes and hot potatoes. What would you buy like a hot cake? What would you drop like a hot potato? Poonam, you start. I would like to buy producing economies because they benefit. So uh, I would be po positive emerging markets, one which are producing, which is uh, the profile of LATAM. Uh, also, uh, you know, it is time to be uh, slightly positive on China from a valuation perspective. A lot is in the price. So, you know, uh, these would uh, be my hot cakes. And the hot potatoes? Hot potatoes is uh, economies which are primarily consumers, uh, which are not self-sufficient. I would put probably Europe in that category. Okay. And Caroline, what are your hot cakes and hot potatoes? So my hot cake would be uh, European renewables. So the shifting energy policy supportive. Uh, Europe has to reposition. So there is a tailwind for renewables across Europe. And my hot potato would be consumer staples. Um, we've got high input costs. A consumer is going to react uh, with the pressure of inflation and prices. And a weaker consumer is not positive for staples. Some great things to think about. That's all we have time for today. Thank you to Poonam and Caroline for joining me. And thanks to Andrew and our analysts. And thank you for listening. If you'd like to read more about any of the topics we've discussed, please go to your local Fidelity website or to fidelityinternational.com. And if you've enjoyed what you've heard, then please like, share and subscribe. The producer today was Holly Eastman with additional technical support from Connor Bailey. From all of us at Fidelity, goodbye. This podcast is for investment professionals only and should not be relied upon by private investors. This podcast is provided for informational purposes only and is intended only for the person or entities to which it is sent. It must not be reproduced or circulated to any other party without the prior permission of Fidelity. The value of investments can go down as well as up, so you may get back less than you invest. For other important legal notices, please visit your local Fidelity website.